The battle of Britain is about to begin. Welcome back to the Lead Pursuit Podcast. Tonight, we're going to delve into yet another game, betraying our Blood Red Skies loyalties, but sharing more about another fun and interesting aeronautical game with you. So tonight, I had to trim down the team. I had to get rid of the dead weight, the non-hackers, the guys that just couldn't bring their A game. So I've still got Steve on the podcast. Steve, how are you doing up there in the ice station? Uh, we're doing good, and uh, I guess Brett needed a little break since I'm going to be pulling the RV up in a couple of weeks, parking outside there in Florida, so uh, it's all right. He can take a little break. Yeah, you know, I think we've all determined we're going to become Florida snowbirds here soon enough and hang out on Brett's front lawn. Well, tonight we're going to talk about Aerodrome and the family of games that is Aerodrome. So we've got two guests on board tonight. We've got Stan Kubiak, the owner and publisher of Aerodrome. Stan, how are you doing? Doing great, and it's great to be here. Awesome. Glad to have you on the podcast. Well, we also decided to bring along the number one aerodrome evangelist, none other than Mark Wukas. Mark, how you doing? Delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Awesome. Glad to have both of you on. So, for those of us that I've been shamed a few times into trying the system, and I've dodged and defended and made excuses with Mark and said I had to get my hair done or it was beer 30. Uh, I need to know a little background because Steve has played this game. So Steve played with you guys at Historicon, but I haven't. So make me smarter here. I need to know, uh, Stan, how you and Mark found the original World War One game uh, back in the 1990s. I was a gamer and discovered Aerodrome. First saw Aerodrome as a game at a convention in California in 1992 and immediately fell in love with it. Uh, the distinguishing things about Aerodrome were, number one, it had beautiful model airplanes because people were building and painting 172-scale World War I models, and those were the airplanes that were being used. They were on telescoping rods so that you could simulate altitude. But the thing that most distinguished aerodrome was the fact that everybody had a wooden panel in front of them in which they were putting 22 caliber shell casings to mark ammunition and wooden pegs to indicate maneuvers and altitude. The game was so simple, so elegant, so beautiful that I fell in love with it immediately. Well, it's and then, one of those those funny things that I, I honestly hadn't heard of it because I'd been off doing sci-fi games since the 90s. And so it was kind of neat to find out that this had been out here all along and I totally missed it because I was wasting my time with games like 40K. <laughs> you would have had a lot more fun with Aerodrome. Yeah, that that is no kidding. Yes. <laughs> the people probably smell better, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. Gamers but, are all the same in that way, I guess. Right, right. But I, uh, I fell in love with the game, and I arranged to get some equipment for the game and the rules for the game from the creator. And 
started playing it. It's actually started hosting a few games. But within a couple of years, it became obvious that the guy who originally made Aerodrome was getting out of it. He was going to let it die. And so I was able to get in touch with him. And I loved it so much, didn't want it to die. I arranged to buy the rights from him. And so that happened about 1994. And I took the game and added aircraft to it, cleaned up the rules immensely, um, made a few innovations like a colorful mat that you could play instead of a solid green piece of felt. Um, I changed the bases of the flight stands to be transparent plastic so that you could see the mat underneath. And I was about to say, especially after spending so much money on mats this last week, I'm really enjoying the whole transparent base thing. Right, exactly. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting I mean, my money's worth. <laughs> it feels more like you're flying if you can see what you're flying over. Yeah, absolutely. So essentially, I, I revamped the game in a, in a very major way, and I retitled it Aerodrome 1.1 and started uh, going to conventions. First introduced it at Historicon. Uh, back in 1994, actually 1995, was my first time putting it on at a major convention. And uh, to the game, I also added the concept of keeping ongoing records of people's victories and awarding medals. I had uh, um, wings made, silver wings for a person's first victory, gold wings for their fifth, and I've got records that go back to 1995 for Aerodrome 1 uh, that's, so, that that's we awesome. could, so that people could play the game on a continuing basis from one convention to another. <laughs> well, that's awesome because Steve had told me about that, and, and I did not know that uh, until he'd played. And, and that's just a neat continuity uh, that, that I know a lot of people get super – bent about being competitive or not competitive, but that's a that's a leaderboard without being crazy competitive, and I kind of like that idea. It's really worked out very well, and we have, in Aerodrome 1, there were a few people that have, over the years, uh, earned more than 100 kills and wear their various medals very proudly all the time. That's cool. That's cool. And then, uh, while I was putting on those games, I got a lot of requests from enthusiasts to take the aerodrome concept, which is really based on having to program or prepare three moves in advance. And that's really the aerodrome concept is you have to decide what you're going to do three moves in advance. And it creates an uncertainty that really makes for all the fun. You have to figure out or guess what other people are going to do. And so I was asked to look at the possibility of making a World War II variant of the game. And so it took a couple of years to come up with the ideas, and there were some major changes that had to be made to Aerodrome 1 in terms of maneuvers, because World War II aircraft are faster and more maneuverable, uh, in terms of the combat system, because in World War I, it's really simple. People had one or two 30 caliber machine guns. Yeah, That's exactly. really all it was. <laughs> No in, lead competing sites or any of those fancy things. Exactly right. And in World War II, it goes from essentially a single 30 caliber machine gun all the way up to four to six 30 millimeter cannon. Right. And so I had to figure out a way to 
accommodate that variation in weapons platforms. So came up with the mechanism for that and started uh, playtesting it around, I guess, maybe 2005 or so. And then by 2007, it was ready. And that's where the record starred for Aerodrome 2. Well, did you, as you were working towards building Aerodrome 2, was there any moment where you suddenly realized you were either breaking a core component uh, from one or was any of it the, man, I really wish I'd done it that way in Aerodrome 1.0 when, when World War II kind of aircraft opened your eyes to, to other techniques or other ways of, of tackling a rules problem? Well, the, the, the interesting thing is that Aerodrome 1, all of the Aerodrome games, are really games. They are not simulations. And that's important for people to realize. You know, we don't, there is a lot that's abstracted in order to make the games easy to learn, fun to play, and fast to play. And in Aerodrome 1.1, the World War I version, that's the, absolutely the simplest version. You can learn to play Aerodrome 1 in five minutes, maximum. And You underestimate the dumb questions I could ask. <laughs> believe me, I don't. I, do, I can teach you to play Aerodrome 1 in three minutes. Excellent. <laughs> it's, it's that simple, and it plays quickly. In a two-hour gaming session for experienced aerodrome players, you can get in eight to ten rounds of play because there are mechanisms built into it, in effect, that make it fast and make it end relatively quickly. But in World War I, the World War I version... Damage, for example, the maneuvers are very simple, and damage, for example, is deterministic. If you get a certain setup on a target aircraft, you always score the same number of damage points. And that's, that's feasible because of the fact that the weapons platforms were so uniform. Right. That just doesn't work in World War II. And the planes, as I mentioned, are faster and much more maneuverable. So I knew that there was going to have to be there would have to be changes to the maneuvers. And I knew that there would have to be a fundamental change to the combat system. And so instead of duplicating what I did in Aerodrome 1, I decided to make combat in Aerodrome 2 probabilistic. Okay. What I did yeah, in effect <laughs> was I, I tried my best to calculate the throw weight, the kinetic energy. <laughs> I was going to ask what the, the metric was. <laughs> I, I, what I did was I tried to calculate the throw weight of a certain length of burst based on the caliber, the weight of the projectiles, the muzzle velocity of all the different weapons platforms and rank them. And then within those ranks, each aircraft would get a die that represented how powerful its weapons were. The bigger the die, the more powerful the weapons. Right. And then planes that had cannon, because the shells are explosive, would get a one-level boost. Oh, okay. Makes sense. And, and so this way, a plane, that, a plane that had a lot of uh, armament or heavy firepower would definitely outclass a plane that had less. But it's still probabilistic. It's right. possible in air, whereas in Aerodrome One, you're always going to get a hit if you have if you're within range and and the target's there. In Aerodrome Two, you can miss the target entirely, 
you can hit the target and cause damage. Or if you're close enough and the points are enough, you can destroy it in a single burst. But the chances are different for each aircraft based on their weapon ring. Nice. Well, did it? Did you have to kind of map out the the depth of capability that you had? Because I know one of the toughest things we've seen in a lot of games is as you compress the stats, all of a sudden it's kind of hard to draw the difference between, you know, two nose-mounted 20 millimeters and four wing-mounted 20 millimeters because you only have so many stat lines you can give them. <laughs> right. No, that's true. But in... Aerodrome 2, there is still a level of abstraction. Right. right. And so by just calculating you know, the, the relative uh, throw weight, if you will, like you would for a warship in the age of sail, by calculating the throw weight, a lot of those problems go away. And yeah. so it doesn't matter in Aerodrome 2 whether your cannon is nose-mounted or wing-mounted or where your machine guns are. It really is just a question of, how, how powerful overall? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. exactly. How much lead can you throw, and how powerful is that lead that you're throwing? Well, and it, it makes an interesting discussion. Even though I will use an example from cannon armed aircraft, but we we've had the discussion a lot of times with people as you got to you went from pure breech cannons to rotary cannons, and the the concept of how crazy high the rates of fire became, mm -hmm. uh, and even though you had something like uh, an M61 Vulcan cannon putting down 6,000 rounds per minute, <laughs> that the problem is it sometimes became a, a laser beam that if you, if you were not precisely on the enemy, you missed him totally. And, you know, interesting stories of, uh, of aircraft like, uh, you know, F4Es, uh, when they when they finally get guns and totally miss, <laughs> you know, because they don't have a good lead computing gun sight in there, and so um, I think it's uh, it, it's kind of interesting to use, you know, shell weight, and it works well um, in a lot of cases. But you know, I, I guess the question I'll ask you is: so, how many other things did you find yourself having to to add in for other aircraft capabilities? As just during World War II, the level of advancement from what was the pre-war fighter, you know, available on day one to the really complex machines at the uh, at the end of the, the conflict? Um, how did you take that into account? Well, there were a few things. One of the aircraft in Aerodrome 2, just like in Aerodrome 1, have certain characteristics. One of the primary characteristics is damage. How much damage can they take? That contains a lot of abstracted information. Um, their ability to climb, their ability to dive are, again, basic. And the amount of firepower, the amount of ammunition that they might carry, uh, again, within certain limits, we abstract a lot of that, but we keep it to a minimum so that there isn't a huge amount of information that needs to be recorded. So when you're flying an aircraft in Aerodrome 2, you have to worry about your damage points because you take, when you take damage and you take all of your damage, you're shot down. You have to worry a little bit about how much ammo you have, although most aircraft get either 24 or 24, uh, 20 or 24 points of ammo. You have to worry about 
how fast you can climb and how fast you can dive. But that's, again, abstracted enough so that it's really not a strong consideration. We don't take, Aerodrome 2 doesn't take into account things that a simulation would take into account. For example, picking up a lot of speed when you dive or losing a lot of speed when you climb. There are certain maneuvers that may affect where you are and what you're going to end up doing. But that's where a lot of this abstraction comes in that keeps it a game rather than making it a simulation. Well, that hugely interests me because as Steve and I have talked about, a lot of games, when they abstract the, the physics of flight, tend to either make assumptions that we think were founded by people playing flight sims, <laughs> not mm-hmm. realizing how hard it is to actually fly an airplane, much less shoot somebody else with guns mounted on that airplane. Uh, or they they tend to follow some very deterministic rules that if I point my nose more towards the ground, I pick up speed that is immediately added into my uh, my current speed. And if I pull my nose up above the horizon, then I immediately lose speed that is taken from my speed this turn. Um, not really factoring in power, dive brakes, all the you know different things you could add in there to, to make each one of those maneuvers unique. Um, so I think that's, that's one of those interesting concepts. A lot of the, the game variables in, uh, in combat also with Aerodrome 2 are the characteristics of each plane. For example, if you're flying the A6M2 uh, Zeke, you can uh, you can turn on a dime, but you're also twenty percent more likely to catch fire. <laughs> oh, that, so there are things pesky like fuel that tanks. That are built into <laughs> exactly the system. Right. Uh, God, no! You got to put the you got to make them leak proof. Well, but, it, you uh, know, I, so and that I, was going to be the, the question stuff. for you guys is. You know where where kind of was your your red line? How did you say okay? I'm gonna I'm only gonna go to simulating so much um, depth where it where I can keep it to to being a game and not a simulation. Um, I mean, was there was there kind of a point where you're like okay, we need planes that can maneuver differently. We need planes that that are fireballs. You know, uh, how did you how did you kind of break that down? It really was more trial and error based on what I knew from Aerodrome 1 and how it worked and what some of the underlying principles were behind Aerodrome 1. Right. For example, and that's it's not apparent in what we've said so far, but the game is basically a hex-based game. Uh, it's, it's played on a map in which there are hexagons and planes always fa- uh, face the side of a hexagon. And you have certain maneuvers that allow you to move in certain patterns on the hexagonal basis. Um, And what I knew from Aerodrome 1 is that there are only a certain number of hexes that a plane can be allowed to end up on based on its maneuvers and still have a reasonable chance of being found by another plane that's flying around to be a target. If a plane could end up absolutely anywhere, then the game becomes random. Well, I was going to I was going to ask that a little bit because that's one of my pet peeves with how some uh, pre-plotted movement games are done is they are not constrained, and as a result, 
literally, like you say, who knows if the airplanes are going to meet up in the same piece of sky to shoot each other? <laughs> well, in fact, the the biggest single or the most frequent single criticism of Aerodrome 1 and Aerodrome 2 is that just as you have to plot your maneuvers three moves in advance, if you're going to fire your guns, you have to plot that in advance too. And if you've plotted fire, you shoot, regardless of whether or not there is a valid target in front right. of you. <laughs> yeah. and, and a lot of people don't like that fact. And you can make certain rationales for it, but the real underlying rationale for it is it is that mechanism that allows the game to come to a close early on. Well, so I think you hit two really important pieces there, and they are pieces that I feel as a game evangelist, and I'll blatantly say I'm the Blood Red Skies evangelist and aficionado and probably biggest detractor from Andy Chambers that he <laughs> he hates when I ask some tough questions and tell him I disagree. But but I think those are some some important points you have to remember with any game is you if you do not create a mechanic to eventually end the game somehow, it will literally keep going on assuming right. you have you have been fairly generous with whatever the um, whatever the resource is, whether it's fuel, ammunition, uh, energy, <laughs> whatever it is. You know, and so like Blood Red Skies has the boom chip mechanic to kind of hurry things along and say, your squadron's going to eventually, you know, uh, leave the field of battle. I, I think games have to have that. And also importantly, I think a lot of people may not appreciate just how many rounds were shot with no hits <laughs> in aerial combat. Um, and, and I think that's something that a lot of times, as Steve and I talk, it's Steve. How, how did you put it the other day um, when you were you were out flying? You think that people uh, think that, that fighters would just pull the trigger and enemy planes would blow up in front of them, something like that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's yeah. I mean, the first time I taxied an airplane, I looked like a freaking serpentine. That was like my immediate notice that I wasn't cut out to be like you know Chuck Yeager. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, we in in. In, in all versions of aerodrome, you really have to husband your resources. Uh, you know, Stan uh, will start every game by saying, you know, you got to fire double bursts uh, because you got to shoot something down, but you got all these people who are shooting single bursts and, and so they can make it all last. And sometimes that's an effective strategy, but I think that, uh, you know, there's some husbanding of resources, but if you're firing single bursts, you're a chump, you're going to be shot down so fast. So there is an element of, of resource well, management. Right. There is, right. but we have we have three basic commandments of all aerodrome games. The first commandment is you do what you program, not what you're meant to do. Right. The second right. commandment is uh, left and right are from the pilot's viewpoint, <laughs> not your viewpoint sitting at the table. <laughs> exactly. And the third is the game rewards people who shoot. So yeah. there is a balance between husbanding your ammunition and actually being able to shoot things down. But that plays back to this issue of constructing the maneuvers. When I needed to figure out what maneuvers aircraft in World War II should be capable of doing, I had to balance their maneuverability about where an aircraft could end up. If I had aircraft maneuvers set up so that aircraft could end up again anywhere, 
it becomes much less interesting because they're the chances of their being found as a target is so low. Well, that, that would be my experience in X-Wing, is that right. literally it is possible for one guy to turn left 90 degrees, the other turn right 90 degrees, and you literally go the wrong way, and it takes you three turns to get back where the bad guy is. So, yeah, you're right. And so I was able, it really was a, a trial and error process uh, for the space of about a year, working through different maneuvers and playtesting and finding out what the optimal set of maneuvers would be. And so finally came to that. And then on top of that, started to add a few variations to that because, you know, we haven't talked about this, but in Aerodrome 2, there are rules not just for dogfighting, but for air naval combat, which includes dive bombing, torpedo bombing, uh, strategic bombing becomes popular. All of those rules are built into Aerodrome 2 within a framework that is still has a certain amount of abstraction and is still easy to learn, easy to play, and a lot of fun. Yeah, well, that, that's good to hear because I think, unfortunately, a lot of times when you add roles and missions into a game, you add unnecessary complexity. And, and everyone's a, a victim of it. I, you know, um, I'm certainly not immune to it, especially the small projects I've worked on where you say, oh, I just want to add this one more thing that I think will be really thematic. And, you know, seven paragraphs of rules later, you realize all you've done is just make more loopholes and create more problems. Um, so I, th I think it'll be interesting because I, I, I'm excited to get a chance to play. Hopefully, I know I'm uh, set up at Adepticon uh, for I didn't I didn't get the Malta game. I got to do the Battle of Britain game, which, as our listeners know, is probably my least favorite historical battle. <laughs> but that's all right. I really wanted to do Malta. Um, Can I ask why that is, uh, Doug? Why do I uh, not like the Battle, Battle of Britain, Britain stuff? So here like is it. my here is my why Battle of Britain does not interest me as much. Um, have you ever read Ace Factor, the book? Um, it's a whole discussion on situational awareness and why people shoot down a lot of the enemy. I have not read that. It it makes a very interesting point that deglamorized a bit of the Battle of Britain for me. And this is not to take anything away from uh, from any of the RAF or uh, any of the Commonwealth pilots or U.S. pilots that served over there, serving under the uh, under the RAF, um, because of absolute bravery. But one of the points the book made is when you start to look at kill ratios of aircraft that are vastly outnumbered, you realize. It's good to be outnumbered sometimes because you can always find an enemy bandit in front of you. And and the point in Ace Factor is that um, it's situational awareness is much easier to keep when you're outnumbered uh, than than when you are the you know two guys and um, you know or sorry you the three hundred guys you're trying to keep track of attacking two hurricanes out there. So I think it's for me the the Battle of Britain has always been a, a really a really cool action, but not as interesting to me as what I felt some of the desperate actions were like Malta, where not only do you have wave after wave after wave of airplane coming your way, you don't have any to replace the ones you've lost because <laughs> they're not getting launched off the carrier or the ones you just fixed just got bombed in the revetments. Um, so I, I think that's been fascinating to me. And and you'll even laugh when I say this. Um, I'm I'm not a huge World War II Pacific fan. I, I like some of it. Um, obviously I'm a little biased. No, obviously I'm a little biased in that I like, um, Guadalcanal. Um, but that's, 
that's about the extent of my um, of my Pacific Theater, Marine Corps, and Navy uh, interest. I I grit so my teeth and do Midway things since Midway is the latest. <laughs> I'm a Cactus Air Force guy, like, and that that's just okay. That's ingrained in every Marine officer in aviation. That's that's our our spiritual home. <laughs> yeah, Joe Foss and Henderson Field. Well, I think you would enjoy playing Midway in Aerodrome too. Well, I I would love you know doing anything with with Wildcats in in Aerodrome. I'll be honest, I I I like playing any kind of a game. So you will, you will sucker me into playing Aerodrome, uh, and I will enjoy it. Um, but it's just, it's funny, the, the things that I like historically versus Steve. I mean, Steve, you, your take on, on probably your favorite World War II battles? Oh, man. Uh, big fan of anything in the Pacific. You know, Corsairs, Hellcats, all, all that's pretty much my, my favorite. You would love, I think, Midway in Aerodrome too, because the way that we have played it, uh, and, the, and we did this at Historicon a few years ago, was having two tables side by side. On one table, there was an American fleet of carriers and escorts. On the other table, there was the Japanese fleet of carriers and escorts. And each side sent a strike force of torpedo bombers, dive bombers, and escort fighters to the other table, essentially, to try and sink the fleet. And we had... That's cool. We had interesting scoring rather than just how many ships did you sink or how many airplanes did you shoot down. We had a complete scoring system where if you shot down an enemy plane before it dropped its torpedo, you got more points than if you shot it down after. There were points for how much damage you scored on a given ship, more for aircraft carriers, obviously, than for destroyers. And we scored both teams. We had about 20 players, almost 24 players on the two tables, all using you know, these uh, easy mechanisms for keeping track and plotting their moves. And at the end of about four hours of play, it turned out that the U.S. team beat the Japanese team by one point. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Nothing like a close fight. It was a great um, experience. That's good. Well, and, you know, I think that's something that a lot of people have not done well is linked narrative games like that between multiple tables. Uh, a lot of times, you know, people have either made the interaction between the games overly complex or the just the nature of the rule system means uh, so few forces make it to the next table that there's there's not much <laughs> not much fight left. Um, so that's that's kind of a cool thing to do. That would be a, an interesting thing to see. It would be pretty fun to, to, to play through. Mark uh, will be interesting to talk to about the way that he develops some of the scenarios because he's done a lot with Battle of Britain and with the Pacific and with things like Malta and the Channel Fight. He's really good about putting together these kinds of narrative scenarios. Yeah, yeah so in, in any case, he's really good at that, and he's done uh, a, a number of scenarios, and we're hoping to formalize some of those. One of the things I want to do for Aerodrome 2 is uh, put out a couple of supplements, one for the Air Naval Combat in the Pacific, one for a strategic bombing, one for Europe, and incorporate a number of these really, really good scenarios that we can play and get 
interesting, reasonable historical results from what is really a very simple and easy to learn framework. All right, so let's talk a little bit more about hosting games at conventions. We, we've talked about some of the larger games that you've done. We've talked about a little with the interface. What have you seen are the big hurdles to get people involved in the game? Is it, uh, even though the brief is pretty quick, they're like, oh, this must be way too simple of a game. This is, this is not enough simulation for me. Or, you know, are people kind of put off by models on, on stands? What, what usually have been your problems? Okay, Doug, I... I'm going to jump in here. <laughs> this, this is not fair. Is, I don't no, care about your, what is, you hate. <laughs> this is the perfect spot to interject my introduction to Aerodrome. Okay, All right. so Absolutely. The, first, the first time we saw this game, we were at NashCon. And I go back and forth with this like love-hate relationship with hexes, right? And walked past the table, and I was like, ugh, hex, another hex airplane game, right? And that, then That is, in fact, a quote you and I have said a number of times. Okay. And then we were, like, fresh off of this conversation about how uh, aerial combat games do not need a doctorate. You shouldn't need a doctorate in physics to be able to play an aerial combat game, right? Like, like yeah, you always yeah, my say, usual rule of thumb is if I have to apply <laughs> what I know about aviation to enjoy the game, then we have a problem. <laughs> yeah, it's not fun, right? Like you've always said, like when I'm playing a Age of Sail game, they assume that I know what to do with the sails, right? Yeah. So I yeah. saw this wooden dashboard and I was like, oh, like no way. Like that just looks too complicated. I'm not doing it. And then on top of that, I mean, there is absolutely nothing I hate more than a blind pre-planning, uh, you know, pre-planned movement game. Like, so I was like, no you, way you I'm are absolutely this game. building the case for me to ask. How Not much did they pay it. you to to become a fanboy? <laughs> <laughs> no. So at Historicon, went to Historicon, was just trying to meet people. Signed up for uh, anything that really had airplanes with it that I could check out. Aerodrome 3.0 was kind of later in the evening on Saturday. Literally every other game I signed up for was a hex-based pre-planned movement game. And I walked into the Aerodrome room and I was like, this is really what I signed up for right now. And Doug, I can't tell you, five minutes into playing, or not even watching, just watching, because I wasn't in the first game. I was kind of like absorbing the rules. Five minutes into watching this game, I was like, I need to get a seat at this table. This is just fun. Like, it is just a fun <laughs> awesome. freaking game. So everything he said about, uh, you know, making it be a game and, I mean, and, you know, plot pre-programming, but the moves are kind of constrained so you're not flying opposite directions. I mean, it is just fantastically fun aerial combat game that, I mean, it just blew me away. I'm really happy to hear you say all that. It's really, it's what's important to me in aerodrome, all of my aerodrome games. Uh, it's been, it's not a business, it's a hobby. And I've been doing this hobby for basically close to 30 years now. 
and it is important to me that people enjoy the game and have fun at the game. And that, to me, is really what it's all about. Well, I think there's a tendency for people to, and it's like everything we do in America these days with our side hustles, quote unquote, is that they always want to turn it into a business. And I have seen the, uh, you know, the, the gaming industry go that way in a lot of ways where people could have made really fun mom and pop games and produced a real simple rule system. But because everyone thinks it's got to be on Kickstarter now and you've got to have a huge splashy release, you've got to hire graphic designers and all these things that some of these things have missed the point of being a game, which is to be fun. (laughs) You know, and if it's a multiplayer game to have people around the table enjoying themselves. It's one of the biggest problems at conventions is that people want to play and very often they can get into the game because the tables are full all the time. Yeah, and I've I've noticed that. And this is one of those funny things about coming back to gaming conventions after a 20-year hiatus, (laughs) doing other things in life other than playing games. Um, But it was... It was so interesting to see the inability to play what you wanted to play or just with scheduling. We've we've had the same problem with Adepticon when people are so into a specific game that they schedule games for the entire day. And I sit there and I go, man, I love some of these games, but A, I don't want to stand behind a gaming table all all day. And B, more importantly, there's a lot of stuff out there I'd like to try. I'd like to go Mm -hmm. play and go do. Um, so it's always refreshing to have a game that is number one quick, um, but that people are, are designing uh, at least the events to get as many people through and do as much playing as possible. Most of my games just go two or, th- or three to four hours max. Um, as I say, that if, if as long as it's not eight hours, then we're good. <laughs> no, no, it's not Napoleonic's. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> This episode has just jumped. I mean, when we're making fun of Battle of Britain and Napoleonics in the same episode, it is just climbing the charts for me. We've lost time. we've lost our European readership at this point. All of our European listeners have disconnected. I'll, I'll look at the iTunes stats and they'll say, yep, halfway through, 50% of your people stopped listening. It's all right. We love you anyway. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to kind of go full grognard for a moment, though, and and ask the tough question of... Okay, so I get it. It's it's a game. It's not a simulation. It's fun. That's fine. But why do people keep coming back? I mean, come on. I mean, aren't there like a bazillion, you know, you know, simple, fun, easy games that are out there that you can play beer and pretzels? Why, why would anyone rack up 100 kills in Aerodrome? As Stan said early on, before I became a, one of his Myrmidons, it's the most fun you can have with your clothes on. And... I have to say, it, it's just <laughs> nice. a blast. And it, the games go fast. They're action-packed. There's no sitting around and waiting. It's just great fun. And people make it fun. The game masters always make it fun. When I when I game master a game, whether it's Aerodrome 1, 2, or 3, I make a point of doing things, saying things, working things, so that it's as much fun for people as possible. And in Aerodrome, you're going to find people laughing at what's going on on the table because they're having so much fun. 
and people want to get their medals. We have medals above and beyond the wings for one victory and five victories, and, and people work to accumulate those different awards. Uh, we've also done, I've also done on occasion, tournaments, small tournaments for aces only with special awards for that. And people love that sort of thing. Well, that's so, that's what I was going to kind of ask about is when you find people that have obviously played, and I'll call it at the higher tiers, maybe it just means they've played more, um, but that have really racked up these events. It, it's good to hear that you do something uh, distinctive and different for them because Obviously, you, and I'll put the who in it, you are making the game a lot more enjoyable, and it's the crowd of people that are returning. And something that I noticed between a few uh, Gathering of Eagles events were that it was funny how some of the same people wanted to play against the same other people, regardless of the game system. And it wasn't just because you were close friends or you're from the same town or whatever. Um, but it's because you enjoyed talking crap to the person across the table from you and knowing that they didn't care, <laughs> you know, and having a, an enjoyable time. That really is the case. I was going to say, we've done that at a few conventions too, because we've had occasions where there have been families playing Right, uh, as four or six people from the same group. Oh, that's and when funny. You, when you put them across from each other and then start trash talking, and I, as the game master, start trash talking. Oh, yeah. about oh, yeah. what they're doing. The, there they, is no family loyalty it. at that point. They love it. <laughs> well, you know, I I think one of the things that we're going to institute for gathering of eagles for some of our uh, blood red skies stuff is grudge matches, where either in the tournament you can pick your first round opponent uh, or the fact that the the day before the tournaments on those Friday nights, it will be a lot of beer and calling out uh, whatever other nationally ranked or not <laughs> player you want to meet, uh, meet on the tables. Cause Steve and I had a lot of fun doing that. You know, it was, it was good to trash talk for, uh, for a month or so up, up until uh, siege of Vicksburg. Uh, and then Steve and I had to live stream and put our money where our mouth was. <laughs> And play against each other. So I, I think that's that adds an element of, of you know, good-natured rivalry and things that, that are, to me, are a part of gaming in general um, that, at times, I think we lose at conventions. Uh, one, you lose it when you just don't know everybody. I mean, I'll be honest, the first time I walked into a, a Horus Heresy uh, gaming convention, I knew there were people there at Adepticon that were, you know, people I'd talked to on the internet or, you know, had, had exchanged comments about models or whatever with, but it's not the same if it's not the people you're used to playing against. So there's always, always some fun to built in camaraderie by having repeat offenders. Mm -hmm. You made that point in, um, in the last pot in a recent podcast where you talked about having guys bring their squadrons and then duke it out and stuff like that. And it'd be interesting to see, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to win with my one Oh nines or no, I'll be up there with my hurricanes or, or just whatever. I think that adds a, a, a personal element to uh, gaming. Another point I wanted to make about the Aerodrome family of games and, and not being a business, being a hobby, is that I've been very deliberate about trying to make it, make the new variations of Aerodrome such that people don't have to make a huge new investment in order to play. Aerodrome 1, 2, and 3 all utilize the same, very same control panels, wooden control panels. 
It's just a question of how you mark different maneuvers and different things that you're doing on those panels. All of the games use the same flight stance. And you, while it's a good idea to have a different mat for over water in the Pacific versus over the trenches in World War I, you can play on any hex-based surface. The game is scaleless. You can play it with planes ranging from 1 300th to 1 72nd, at least in World War I. And so I've tried to engineer things so that people can, who decide that they want to play aerodrome and want to own some aerodrome equipment don't have to keep buying new stuff. Right, right. Well, and I think that's one of the interesting barrier to entries to a lot of games is that anytime it either changes time periods and or changes, you know, revisions that it's just buying a ton of new stuff again, as I'm looking at all of my, you know, seventh edition and eighth edition Warhammer 40k stuff that <laughs> all those stacks of cards and decks and everything else are no longer useful. Uh, unless I want to go back and play old hammer, <laughs> but that's all right. Okay, so we've covered a lot of the different things that have gone on both in the game itself. Uh, what you guys haven't told me, even though we've talked about the community and we keep mentioning it, is Aerodrome 3.0. What exactly is in 3.0? Aerodrome 3.0 is intended to be, in many ways, an extension of Aerodrome 2. Aerodrome 2 goes up to the end of World War II. It covers some of the conflicts between before World War II, such as the Spanish Civil War, the Russo-Finnish War, but it basically stops at the end of World War II. Aerodrome III is intended to cover the realm of jet age air combat from the end of World War II up to, not including, the advent of missiles in the early 1950s. So Korean War, for example, um, certain other conflicts such as China and Taiwan after World War II. Awesome. awesome. That kind of thing. And essentially deal with the last of the gun-oriented aerial combat. Awesome. Steve, is that what you played up at uh, Historicon? Uh, I did. And I was curious, you know, I have three kills. Aerodrome 3.0 is kind of new like, where am I at on the, the leaderboard of, of kills <laughs> the <bottom>. there? <laughs> you are definitely on the leaderboard, but uh, you're not in first place. Because I'm thinking <laughs> if we could set up like a special lead pursuit game, I'm feeling I could really rack up a bunch of kills against some of these losers. And oh, you just, yeah, you just want to use us as, uh, as a, a training <laughs> aid. I see how it is. Oh, I see where your loyalty lies. Well, so uh, like Adepticon, I remember seeing at least uh, some 2-0 for Battle of Britain and for uh, Malta. Are you doing a 3-0 game at uh, Adepticon? I may have missed it. I'm actually not attending Adepticon because I didn't find out about it early enough. So I'm not going to be there. Mark is doing it, and he's really only doing Aerodrome 2 at this point, but... I would love to bring Aerodrome 3 and more Aerodrome in general to Adepticon next year. Awesome. Yeah, that Adepticon is a fun event. Uh, I think, uh, you know, it will, it will change this year with splitting the historicals out, and we'll see how that does. I think in some ways that will be good. Uh, it will be 
actually probably good for my bank account because I won't be right next to the vendor hall anymore. Uh, but uh, I think it will also be a little more difficult because some of us play across multiple genres and, and game times and stuff. So um, I don't necessarily like to be compartmentalized away uh, when I have to put my sci-fi hat on to go back and play 30K and 40K and then come back over and play historicals. Uh, have you have you really uh, run a lot of Aerodrome 3.0 games at conventions, or is that really just starting to now uh, kind of hit its stride and get to be where everybody knows that it's a thing out there? Uh, there's, in general, I think there's less enthusiasm for the Aerodrome 3 era than for World War II and World War One. But there are a lot of people who are interested in it. And I've done uh, demo games now, or learning games, if you will, at conventions for several years. What I'm working on now is really finishing off the rules, which right. means finishing the rules and, more importantly, getting all the aircraft stats together. Because <laughs> it's more than just uh, Korean War. There is actually a fair amount of combat that occurred be between the end of World War II and the advent of air-to-air -air missiles. Right. So it's not going to be as biz big and as extensive as Aerodrome 2 is in terms of the number of aircraft. I think the, the current rules for Aerodrome 2 cover um, around 180 or so different aircraft and variants. Korean War era and the jet age, early jet age will be less, but there's still a fair amount to do with it. Is there any hypotheticals in there? I know that always pushes the buttons of my British counterparts. Well, of one I, British I will, counterpart. I will give you, <laughs> there are a, a few hypotheticals, not in terms of the actual aircraft themselves, but in, in terms of scenarios. We've run a couple of very interesting scenarios, um, one of which, and one of which, as you know, air, U.S. aircraft were forbidden to cross the Yalu River during the Korean right. War. We did a scenario where there was I was a, also forbidden to go to Mexico when I was stationed in Arizona, but, uh, but you went, <laughs> we'll see how that went. <laughs> we ran a scenario in which uh, General MacArthur was in a B-29 that had decided, and he had decided to cross the Yalu River to take out a Chinese military <laughs> headquarters. Right. He was escorted by two F-86 Sabres uh, for safety, but... What he didn't know was that the president didn't want the bomb dropped. And so if he actually made it close enough, the escorting fighters had the mission of shooting down their own B-29 to prevent <laughs> World War III. <laughs> and what, what actually happened as a result was that they were intercepted by MiGs. The MiGs got a shot at the B-29, and the lowest probability result happened, they got a critical hit that set off the A-bomb, <laughs> and Oops. all the participants disappeared. <laughs> exactly. It was, now we'll just it was light the, the board on fire and walk away. It was a fun scenario. That is fun. That, that's pretty funny. So it, that I, I like the fact that you have created some scenarios to do things that are off-the-wall funny and um, while still being entertaining and slightly historical. You know, I, I think... And I, this is where I will continue to lose readership. I think a lot of times we wear the badge of historical accuracy as if it is, you know, the Medal of Honor. And mm -hmm. and I think that we forget, first of all, A, we're playing a game. B, we're doing it to have fun. 
and that at the end of of the whole thing is it's a it's really about the story. And if the story is what weird and wacky things could have happened, you know, what what would have gone on in a conspiratorial, you know, 1950s um, you know, do we do we bomb the Reds back to the Stone Age kind of thing? I think those are fun. And I and I think that makes um uh, it it makes gaming gaming. If I wanted a historical simulation, thanks, I could have gone and gotten a job working for the Department of Defense sitting in a room with no windows. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I want to do that. I want to have fun with my friends and drink beer and, and have an uproariously good time, as, as it seems Steve did at Historicon. So, Steve, you're, you're making me jealous that I didn't go freeze my ass off with you all up there. Uh, does this mean I have to come up there next year? Yeah, definitely. I mean, maybe by next year I'll be rocking my uh, Aerodrome 3.0 Ace Wings on my uh, little name badge there. I'll have to have some swag. You'll have to find some other events to go to. So so actually, that, that brings up a really good point. Um, where are you set to do Aerodrome games uh, over the next couple months uh, for, or for the rest of the, the convention season? Well, let's see. Uh, Mark is doing Aerodrome 2 at Adepticon. We are both going to Little Wars. Uh, I'm I'm going to be doing Aerodrome One there. Uh, unfortunately, the gentleman who was a very real and deep Aerodrome enthusiast who used to put on Aerodrome One games at Little Wars died of COVID this last year, um, and so they haven't seen Aerodrome One in a while. So I'm going to be doing that there rather than Aerodrome Three. Right. Uh, there'll be aerodrome in several flavors, a number of flavors, actually probably all three flavors, at Historicon in July, in Lancaster. Um, I'm sure we're going to do it at NashCon. I wasn't able to make NashCon last year, but I'm hoping to do it this year. Mark was there, and I expect he'll be there again. So we've got a number of conventions where uh, people can get there first or nth taste of aerodrome right right well the uh the problem for me is historicon is falling at a, at a terrible time this year for work travel but we'll see what i can i can work out i know that definitely i will uh, do my best to make it up to nashcon again because it literally is my backyard uh up there and so it's super easy for me to get up and, and i'll have to just make sure rather than devoting my time to being the uh the blood red skies evangelist. I can you know parcel out some time to actually get some other games in and, and enjoy those because uh, I, you know I I enjoy a lot of different war games. I think the problem that we all have, which is which is a good problem, is sometimes you look at the schedule of events and you go, oh my gosh, I don't know, I don't know what to play. There's there's a lot of things I haven't heard of, and that's actually it's a it's a good problem to have. Um, but uh, it's a little intimidating at times to just pitch in and go, I'm going to try this game. And if I'm miserable, surrounded by a bunch of grognards for four hours, I'll just go to the bar and drink afterwards. But it uh, doesn't sound like that's what the aerodrome crowd would be like. So I don't think so. <laughs> I'll put that on my short list. Uh, well, Steve, anything else, uh, any other questions you had or any other observations from your time uh, playing aerodrome? No, just, you know, everything that was said is spot on. Uh you know, Stan as a game master in the game that I was in just made it so fun. Just an absolute fun experience. Uh, just everything about it is true. It's it's fun. It's not a simulation. 
You're going to enjoy it. If you see it at a convention or on a schedule that you can pick, you got to give it a try. Uh, you, you will not be disappointed. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Stan, what's the easiest way for people to get in contact with you? If, if they're like me and they say, well, crap, I don't even know what conventions I'm going to this year, but if I knew one of them was going to have Aerodrome, I'd be sure to make that one. How can people get in touch and find out? Uh, the easiest way would be to email me directly. The email address is aerodromeinfo at gmail.com, A-E-R-O-D-R-O-M-E-I-N-F-O at gmail.com. There's the websites for Aerodrome need major upgrades, but there's an informational website where people can get a little more information about what the three variations are, and that's aerodromeinfo.com. Uh, there's also a suggested email address there too, but email is absolutely the easiest way to get hold of me. Awesome. Well, thanks for showing up on the program. I really appreciate it. Uh, it, it's been good to chat with you guys and good to learn all the things I didn't know about aerodrome. And now I'll try to be less intimidated by <laughs> the, uh, the aircraft on the flight stand in a large display sitting there. Um, but I'll definitely make time, uh, both at Adepticon and then NashCon to come over and play. We well, you look- better be intimidated at Adepticon because I know we're in the same game, man, and I'm two kills away from being an ace, so you better watch yourself. <laughs> oh, so there, that's how it is. I thought I thought you said you are going to be busy for the Battle of Britain game, and, and you wanted to play the Malta game. Well, I, I see how it is. <laughs> My own team calling me out. All right. We'll have to- you, you will enjoy it, and as in any game, fresh meat is always appreciated. <laughs> I see how it is. I'll be the training aid for everyone else. Well, awesome. Well, I really appreciate it, guys. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'd like to definitely get a chance to play this, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So I'm, I'm really, really excited. Sounds good. Thank you again. Absolutely. Well, I'd like to remind the listeners, uh, please leave us some feedback, uh, both on the website. Remember, there's a contact form out there. You can uh, send us a nastygram and tell us what horrible people we are and how terrible we are at doing our job. Um, And no one's going to replace us. So you're stuck with us. Uh, But also, please leave us feedback on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, If you are missing the fact that there haven't been weekly updates to the Grognard Gazette and no more humor on your Fridays, well, um, blame none other than myself. I haven't been funny enough lately. So we promise on Instagram, we'll get back there and start making fun of everybody else and ourselves uh, and trying to at least provide some aviation wargaming humor to the community at large. But thank you everyone for listening. We will see you next time. You, you would have loved this, Steve. I was you know, putting flooring at the farm this weekend and uh, like the first, you know, couple songs were just 80s workout songs that it was a couple songs from Top Gun and I was happy to going back to other 80s workout songs and then the Iron Eagle mix came on. It is not only the greatest series of aviation movies ever made but the greatest movie soundtrack in history. No, no, it's The best 80s movies soundtrack ever. Yeah, wow. Steve has no standards for 80s music. (laughs) 